Hello, friends. This episode is brought to you by Kesava. Kesava creates frozen, naturally gluten-free foods with simple, wholesome, minimally processed ingredients, and has its own line of 100% vegan, easy-to-prepare dishes. This episode is also brought to you by the Vancouver Vegetarian Society. Looking for resources on veganism and vegetarianism? Maybe an opportunity to connect with like-minded people? The Vancouver Vegetarian Society was founded on the belief that a vegetarian and vegan lifestyle is the future. It serves as a welcoming resource for anyone curious about meat-free lifestyles while offering inspiration and education on the beauty and benefits of a plant-based diet. If you're curious to learn more, find them on Facebook and Instagram at, at Vancouver Veg Society or on the web at VancouverVegetarianSociety.com. And finally, this episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary, and more importantly right now, an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw and Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Okay, everyone, and welcome to episode 54 of the Paw and Order podcast. I'm your host, Camille Labchuk, and today I'm joined by a very special co-host. It's not Peter Sankoff for a change. I've got more to say about that later, but I'm joined by Katie Sykes. Welcome, Katie. Hi, Camille. It's uh, it's really exciting to be here, um, and it's big shoes to fill. It's quite intimidating to take <laughs> over from Peter temporarily. Well, you're quite impressive yourself. Similar credentials to Peter. So listeners know Katie is a law professor at Thompson Rivers University in Kamloops. And she has worked for quite some time on various animal issues, written extensively about international trade law and global animal issues, um, more local issues as well. Katie, I think maybe one of the most recent things you published about animal issues was in a, a recent journal about the whale bill that passed and outlawed whale captivity. And uh, Katie, That's right, yep. Yeah, which is a great piece and we can link to it. And uh, Katie also sits on the Animal Justice Advisory Board. I love animal justice. It's uh, it's one of the highlights of my professional life being involved with this organization. You well, guys rock. Well, we love you too. You rock also. <laughs> okay, so it's a love fest. It's a love fest. It's a love fest. And before we get into the podcast, and it is a big one today. I wasn't expecting this, but stuff is coming up in the news. There's a lot going on. That's not just the pandemic for a change. Uh, but I want to talk for a minute about Peter and whether some of you are wondering where Peter are, uh, Peter is. Um, if you follow Peter on Twitter, you've seen that he has suffered some health uh, issues lately. In particular, he had a stroke. Um, last Sunday, he was rushed to the ER after experiencing pretty serious uh, head pain. And the way Peter described it to me when I spoke with him on the phone the other day, and I want to just say right off the bat, he's going to be okay. The doctors weren't so sure about that at first, but he is going to be okay. 
Uh, he described it to me, Katie, as he won the stroke lottery. So of all the kinds of strokes that he could have had that are much more dangerous, that result in serious, long-lasting brain function and body function issues, he basically just had um, a, a bleed in a vein. And mm-hmm. that is not fatal. Um, most people who experience it go on to uh, live to- totally normal lives and uh, eventually pass away of other non-stroke-related causes. But he's still going to have a long recovery. Uh, He's not feeling great. He is leaving the hospital pretty soon. And needless to say, he's going to be taking some time off from the podcast to get himself into a better shape. Uh, He's still in a lot of pain. Um, So I'm just, you know, mostly relieved that Peter's going to be okay because we were all really worried when this incident first happened. But if you love Peter like we all do and want to send him some well wishes, I suggest that you do so via Twitter, which is what he checks. Or you can send us an email at info at animaljustice.ca and we'll pass it along. He still is amazingly active on Twitter and nothing keeps him away. Not not (laughs) even a near-death experience. (laughs) Not even a near-death experience. And I was shocked, you know, speaking with Peter the other night, and I know he's going to listen to this, so I hope he doesn't mind if I say it, but his positivity, he was just so pumped that he's living and he has a chance to do more with his life. And I'm sure he's going to say a lot more about this in a future episode when he's back on his feed and back on the podcast. But, you know, I'm just really grateful that he's still with us and uh, really glad that you're joining us today to fill his big shoes. But I'm sure it's going to be an excellent episode because we've got so much to talk about. Yes, likewise. I mean, I'm very glad that Peter won the stroke lottery and it's not a lottery anyone ever wants to play, as I think he also said in his uh, explanation of it. But um, I'm very happy that it's such a positive outcome for him. We're all very lucky. And uh, you know who else is lucky is our latest intern. So as those of you who listen know, Peter has been running this 100 interns project, trying to find summer positions, at least part time, for all the students who are in the terrible position of having lost summer jobs or can't find them because of the coronavirus crisis. And uh, one of your students, Katie, is going to be joining us mm-hmm. as one of Peter's latest interns. That's right. Uh, Jesse Schwartz. Big shout out to Jessie. Um, she is just one of those really like bright sparks um, and she has so much passion and tons of ability and talent. Uh, and she was in my property class as a first year student. So, you know, first first day of class, I met her um, and she has just really stood out right from the start. She's um, very, very engaged deeply committed to animal issues. Um, She's one of those people who went to law school because she wants to use the law to help animals. Um, And she has a background in environmental um, advocacy and activism as well. Um, And she, I, I mean... I'm, I'm really talking her up here, so I hope, uh, I hope she comes through on it, but I, but I know she will. She will just do fantastic work for you guys. Um, she's a really talented writer, which is something that um, stood out to me right away. And it's, it's just such a versatile, important skill to be able to get your point across clearly and economically in writing. It just helps with everything, right, Camille? I mean, the work that you do, that that communication, really lawyers, lawyers are a lot of things, but one thing that we are maybe above all else is we're professional communicators. And the better we are at doing that, the better we are at whatever it is we, we turn our talents to. And she's got a real talent for that. 
Yeah, it's so true. Whether you're in the courtroom or writing an opinion piece or simply trying to negotiate an outcome for a client, it's one of those essential skills communicating. So we are really excited to have Jesse. And uh, how about you, Katie? How's, how's the end of the semester going? What's the shift been like to online teaching? The end of the semester has been really weird. <laughs> it, it has been the strangest semester. So we are um, officially finished now. The last day of classes was uh, April the 13th, I think. It was sort of the middle of April. Um, like right before Easter, I think. This has been such a strange month. It seems like about five years. So I can't even remember. <laughs> I know. It's been so strange. Um, the last day we had class in the classroom was March the 12th, um, which it was a Thursday and I don't have classes on Fridays. And our university officially shut down um face-to-face classes that Sunday. They made the announcement. But I had kind of already decided I was going to do that. Um so we had animal law that Thursday, and um, Rebecca Bretto was there. <laughs> so, oh. Again, this seems like 500 years ago, um, and it was fantastic. She did a, a really, really interesting talk. There weren't as many students in classes there there usually are, because students were already starting to be concerned and stay away from the, the physical space. Um, and so we wrapped that one up. I went to my office. I wrote out an email to everyone which I sent the next day and said, we're going to do classes by video conference for the rest of the semester. Um, and then our, my university sort of officially announced that uh, before the next week of classes. And so the, we then had a month of um, online classes. And for, the, for my animal law class, I also teach a larger property class in first years, which was I guess a little bit more complicated to move online. Animal law wasn't so bad because it, it, it's 17 students and me, so not a huge group. And we got together by video conference regularly and uh, we were scheduled to have um, presentations for the last two weeks. Um, and I told people that was optional because it is more burdensome, of course, to do it in an unfamiliar kind of format. Um, so some people took that up. One of them was Jessie, and she did a presentation to us on her research for her term paper on habeas corpus for animals in Canada. So applying the sort of same concept that the non-human rights project in the United States, um, Stephen Weiser's group, is doing to argue for legal personhood and habeas corpus for chimpanzees and elephants and cetaceans in captivity. So Jesse's idea was, can we, um, of course, the law in Canada is not exactly the same, but there's lots of points of commonality and the principles about what kind of uh, creatures deserve to be recognized as persons carry over. Um, so she's been writing a paper on that and uh, has finished writing that paper and turned it in. And she did a presentation to the class that was so interesting. It was just really terrific. Um, and those presentations worked great. I really enjoyed them. I actually really like some things about online teaching. I like that um, when I'm in the classroom, I'm standing at the front of the room and everyone is stand sitting there listening to me. And it is not conducive to people jumping in and talking and, and uh, sort of expressing their own expertise about things. And when we're online, we're just all faces on the screen. And it became like quite liberating with the animal class. Um, and uh, another another 
part of it that was really fun was in those last couple of weeks, you know, everything was sort of loosey-goosey. And I told people, like, I wasn't really expecting them to do the readings because everyone's lives were in flux. And yeah, yeah. It just became, right, like, you don't want to overburden people. And everything just became a lot more informal. And right around that time was Tiger King mania. So we actually had a class that we devoted to discussing Tiger King um, including some of the most serious aspects about uh, the legal loopholes in the states around big cats, and it was fantastic. We just we had a lot of fun because Tiger King is outrageous and lurid, and everyone had things to say about it. But we also learned a lot, and people had uh, got interested in different aspects of the law and gone out and learned things and shared it with the class. So I found that tremendously rewarding. Um, it's it's been a strange time, but it's not it, that there's upside to it. Yeah, I think we're all trying to find moments of brightness in this in this weird situation. And, you know, I, I, yeah. I, as somebody who doesn't mind staying at home, I'm not really suffering so badly in this. And I feel worse. Me too. For, Me too. <laughs> yeah, I feel definitely worse <laughs> for the people who <clears throat> um, have lost positions or are really, really struggling right yeah. now, because I know there's a lot of them. But yeah, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm glad to hear that online teaching actually does have its benefits, too, because it looks like not to jinx anything, but there's a strong possibility that many schools are looking at online teaching for the fall too. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. It does look that way. Yeah. Well, Katie, my big news is um, that things have actually surprisingly picked up. So, you know, animal justice, when the crisis hit, we kind of thought nobody wants to hear about advocacy for a while. This is all going to be pandemic news and the courts are closed. The legislatures are closed, but um, mm -hmm. As the pandemic increasingly starts affecting animals, which is something we're going to come back to later on in the main segment of the show, uh, we've yeah. had more work to do. And so one of the issues that keeps coming up is the impact on zoos and aquariums of losing revenue due to the pandemic. There's already a zoo in Germany that's making a list of which animals to feed first to the other animals when it runs out of money. <sighs> Disgusting. It's so gross. That's so macabre. It's oh, it's horrifying. And it just really shows that they think of those animals as commodities. They're not individual lives. Yeah. They're units of uh, income generation yeah. or income loss. And I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. 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 They're just they're dollar figures in the balance sheet. Uh, the Toronto Zoo is fundraising to help afford costs. They're already heavily dependent on the city of Toronto taxpayer funding at the best of times. They would be insolvent without it. But most scholarly, and here's what I wrote about in the Globe and Mail just last weekend, uh, the Vancouver Aquarium is asking for a $9.5 million bailout from the province and from the federal government to try to stay afloat. So it's just shocking to me, Katie, that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're in this position. They're, they're a $46 million a year organization, according to 2018 CRA filings. And they haven't come up with a contingency plan and set a little bit of that money aside to float their costs in a disaster. It's just it's just proof that they don't care about the 70,000 animals they can find there beyond their ability to generate income for them. Yeah. So I yeah. managed to get a piece in the Globe about that, which was pretty exciting. It was excellent. It was a, <laughs> it was a terrific piece. Yeah, I this situation um, reminds me of that that saying that I think it's attributed to Warren Buffett that you know when the tide goes out you can you can see who's swimming with no bathing suit. Oh, good one. <laughs> it just exposes 
I mean, as if, as if it wasn't obvious enough anyway, but it exposes how Vancouver Aquarium and also lots of other zoos and aquariums, when they dress up what they do by saying that it's, it's rescue and it's environmental conservation, um, the minute they start getting re- losing revenue from people coming to look at their animals, they can't survive. And it just it gives the lie to the stories that they're telling. The primary thing they do is sell tickets to have people come look at animals. Yeah, yeah, that really is it. And, you know, some argue that they do rescue and rehab work. And that's true. They, they do some of that work. They do do that. And but it's not, it's not the main thing they do. And if it was, they wouldn't be in this much trouble, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. They'd have other diversified revenue sources. And so what we're saying in animal justice with uh, World Animal Protection, uh, Zoo Check, um, Animal Liberation BC, and um, I know I'm missing someone, but uh, a few of us organized to send a letter to the federal and provincial government saying, if you're going to give them funding, and you know, let me be clear, if the animals are going to starve or they're going to start feeding them to each other, we, we do think that there should be a bailout. But any bailout yeah. has to come with a condition and very, very yes. clear conditions that they transition to being a 100% sanctuary. Enough of this captive yeah. display, taking animals out of the ocean, putting them in tanks and charging people to see them. It has to be a sanctuary model where the animals come first. I completely agree. And uh, yeah, m- money gives gives the public authorities leverage and they should use it. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, it, this is not unique to zoos and aquariums. The, the bailout issue is probably going to start coming from a lot of different sectors. It already is from the farming industry. Yeah. And the way we see it, uh, this is a time for transition. Um, opportunities are always here when we've got crises. And uh, this is one that this is a business model that should just be abandoned and never returned to. It exposes all the ways that this business model and other the others that I know we're going to talk about in a minute are unsustainable. Um, and they have ticked along in normal times with that, the, the problems, the really deep problems kind of papered over or, or not seen so much by people who aren't looking at it all the time like you and I are. But now it's all exposed to everyone. Um, and, and I agree that that's a moment of, I mean, these are very difficult times for a lot of people, but they're also, it's, it's a time of opportunity. Yeah. And yeah. I, I hope that those opportunities aren't missed. I hope so too. And then I wanted to mention just a couple of other things that we've got on the go. Um, so Katie, we filed a false advertising complaint recently against King Cole Duck Farm, which is a factory duck farm outside of Toronto. And back in February, I don't know if you noticed this, uh, it was a bit of a, a news story at the time in Toronto anyway, but some activists went on to the farm and gathered some footage of some pretty disturbing things that were happening there. So footage of decomposing ducks, dead ducks among living ducks, ducks with their feet uh, stuck in wire floors, filthy conditions, almost no light inside these barns. It was really, really sad. Uh, and the problem comes for King Cole, where when is when you look at their website, their website talks about how they're leaders in mm-hmm. animal care and all this flowery language about how good of a job they do of taking care of these animals, um, including claims that their barns have fresh bedding in them. They interestingly, they changed that claim after the video came out <laughs> and showed <Yes>. barns <laughs> with wire floors. So, huh. 
But we've filed a false advertising complaint with regulators. So that's the Competition Bureau and the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. And we're asking them to investigate King Cole for misleading consumers with these false claims. Uh, Because people very much don't want to give money to companies that treat animals poorly. And when they're lied to, they can't make that choice. I think this is a really fantastic example of how animal justice uses the legal tools that exist to protect people creatively in a way that also um, protects animals. And you guys have been pioneers on this, right? False advertising. Isn't that one of the first things that you ever did? Uh, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, you know, when I when I joined Animal Justice um, in, well, I've been around forever, <laughs> but when I officially joined Animal <laughs> Justice, like more or less half time as a volunteer, uh, we first filed a complaint against Canada Goose, the jacket company, for false advertising about the fur that it uses. Mm-hmm. And actually, we're going to get to that because that's one of our news we items. Are. Exciting. Yes, we are. And on on uh, King Cole, um, I mean, I... I really have a particular kind of strong dislike for these companies that market themselves as sort of like the happy meat kind of non, you know, no animal suffering. You can you can have your meat and not cause animals to suffer too kind of uh, kind of marketing angle. I just really hate that because they're they're preying on people's um, good instincts. And I do think it's the case that, you know, no, almost nobody actually wants to cause animal suffering. So there, I, I almost think these companies are worse than just sort of straight up regular old factory farmers, you know, because they cause as much suffering and they, they lie to people and they take advantage of that goodwill. And they also contribute to this kind of general kind of ignorance about what what really happens they make it much easier for people to fool themselves and to believe that it that you can have happy meat um and that is to the detriment of animals everywhere i think yeah i think that's absolutely right katie um even though 99 over 99 percent of the meat that people eat comes from factory farms with appalling conditions people still have yeah. this lingering idea that somehow the meat that they eat oh no it comes from a, a happy place it's yeah. totally fine uh that just doesn't accord with reality but it's places like king cole that lie to consumers and tell them that everything's a-okay that allow people to delude themselves with that fantasy i think that's right yeah and, uh, and my final thought on king cole is I just really like ducks. Ducks are so adorable. They're so sweet. They're just the coolest. And seeing those images of the ducks on that farm is like, it's really heartbreaking because they are just lovely creatures there. And they're always, they're so sort of curious and fun and dabbling around and waddling around. And those, those ducks are, can't access water at all. They have nothing of what they need to live the lives of, of real ducks. And the the images of the barns look like chickens. And it's very, I think, I mean, you and I love chickens, right? But, but I think it's really easy culturally for us to just kind of discount chickens and think of them as like not individuals, but it's less easy with ducks because we all have like these really beautiful encounters with ducks, you know, in childhood when we see like a duck waddling around with the ducklings behind and stuff. And it's just like really jarring to juxtapose that with these, these poor creatures just jammed into like a, like a factory that produces units. 
Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree more. I think we've all had just a, like I see ducks all the time. Uh, anytime you go near a waterway, there's there's beautiful ducks there just living their lives. And yeah. to think they that some of them happy. Yeah, they're happy and they look happy too. They kind of have this like yeah. turned up quality of their beak that appears to be a smile. I know it's not, but uh-huh. <laughs> it's cute and it makes them it makes them look happy. Yeah. I actually had three ducks when we were growing up. Uh, my oh. mom got some ducks just to help with the slug situation in the garden. <laughs> And they yeah, were they're so really wonderful. Good at that. They're really good uh, pest controllers. Yeah. Yeah, they are wonderful. And baby ducks, oh my God. Oh, the cutest. The cutest. So cute. Yeah. Okay, uh, Katie, are you a fan of Game of Thrones? Have you, you know seen what? the show? I've never, I've never watched it. I'm, I'm afraid that once I start, I, it's going to be like a year of my life. So it's going to happen eventually, but I, I'm, it hasn't happened yet. Well, I'm kind of envious of you because then you have a year of your life where you're going to have an awesome thing to watch every <laughs> night. But I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to try to explain this without too many spoilers for you and others who may not have seen the show. But we're talking about Strychnine. And Strychnine was very likely... The poison used to kill um, a certain king who everybody hated. And if you're a fan of the show, you'll know which king I mean. His name starts with J and it rhymes with Offrey. Uh, and <laughs> all right, it's King Joffrey. <laughs> so King Joffrey infamously got poisoned in one of the episodes of the show. And everyone theorizes that because of the way the poison worked, he was killed by strychnine. And the reason I bring this up is that we just filed a notice of objection uh, with Health Canada. Uh, so they're looking at canceling the registration of strychnine poison for killing Richardson's ground squirrels, who, you know, again, ducks are awesome. I love squirrels, too. I can they're see so one outside cute. my window yeah. right now, and they're just they're just great creatures. Uh, but some they people are. like to kill ground squirrels with strychnine poison, which causes just an indescribably cruel death. Um, it's a very cruel poison. Yeah, it's very painful. Incredibly, incredibly cruel. It's. I, I'm not even going to get into the details. We're going to link to the blog post that explains the, the objection that we filed, and you can read it there if you want, but it's just horrible. Um, so the good news is they are canceling the registration, but the bad news is they're saying they don't want to do it for three years. And giving three years notice means people can stockpile this poison, this horrible, deadly poison for a very long time and then kill a bunch more ground squirrels and all the other animals who ingest the poison or ingest the dead ground squirrels. So we're saying yeah. outlaw immediately. Yeah, it's that that just isn't necessary. I know. Just stop killing animals, people. Just stop. Coexist. Coexist, please. Ah, all right. And think think about the unintended consequences as well. Yeah, yeah. That would uh, be a good rule to live by. Um, okay, so those are a couple of the things that we've been up to, and uh, thanks to my colleague Caitlin Mitchell for her work on all of that stuff, and a superstar uh, volunteer, Roxanne, who's helped us out too. And Katie, the last thing I want to let our listeners know about is something special coming up on Tuesday, May 5th. So many of you are really generous supporters of Animal Justice on Giving Tuesday in November. And uh, that's a day of giving. It follows Black Friday and Cyber Monday and all those spending days. It's a day of giving to charities. Very well established, been around for a couple years. Groups really rely on it for funding. Um, Someone has started a Giving Tuesday Now campaign and set that date for Tuesday, May 5th. So the theme is, of course, that the pandemic is upon all of us and a lot of nonprofits, including Animal Justice, are very worried about what this means for our income. 
uh, we rely on donations to do the work that we do to bring you this podcast and to do the work in court and the work in legislatures that protects animals. So we are participating in Giving Tuesday now. And we're bringing you something really fun and something that we hope will provide some value if you're considering making a donation. So we're going to have this page, Katie, where we're live streaming a cool kind of uh, telethon style event and people can leave a donation as well on that page. So what we've got right now is some really, really special guests. We've got Dr. Aisha Akhtar who is a public health specialist and uh, has written a book recently called Our Symphony with Animals, where she talks about how human health and animal health are related. And she also is an expert on pandemics and what causes them and how our relationship with animals causes them, specific uh, factory farming, uh, wet markets, encroaching on wildlife territory, all those kinds of things. So Aisha is going to speak. We've got former undercover investigator Jeff Regeer, who's been uh, inside factory farms all over Canada. And he's going to speak about his experience in terms of what the animals go through, but also the horrific mm -hmm. biosecurity concerns that are seen on factory farms. Because, um, you know, wow. when videos come out, Katie, like, say, for instance, you're in BC. So let's talk about the Chilliwack cattle sales video. Yeah. yeah. Horrible stuff. Animals being abused. Um, those videos, what you don't often see is a lot of other footage um, that shows horrible biosecurity concerns that are the kind of yes. thing that potentially lead to superbugs and to viruses and to pandemics. Yes. So we're going to talk about that. And then my colleague Caitlin Mitchell and I are going to wrap that up with, an ad with a session about how you, from your home, from the comfort of your computer and your phone, can do political advocacy and make sure our politicians know about these issues and know what needs to change. So we're going to do a mini training course, uh, kind of similar to one that we did in person last year in Toronto that was really, really great, talking about the legislative process, how to contact members of parliament, how to get your message out, how to make legal change. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm excited. I feel like uh, I feel like as Peter Standen, I should say something about hobby horses right now. <laughs> oh, he's going to be <laughs> delighted when he hears this episode. He's well represented today. <laughs> I'm doing my best. I'm doing what I can. But that sounds fantastic. And is is that going to be recorded? Like, will it be available live or after or both? It will be recorded. Yeah, I think we're using Zoom to do it and it'll be broadcast through the page, but I'm sure we'll find a way to save it. So if you don't catch it right away, you can tune in. So it sounds amazing. Yeah, I'm super pumped about it. Um, so people, if you want to learn more about it, it's it's going to run from 530 till about 7pm on Tuesday, May 5th, Eastern Time. And uh, we're going to broadcast it through a, a web page, but we'll be linking to that page on our social media accounts. And if you're on our email list, you'll also get an email about that. So you'll have lots of ways to find out where it is. And we would love for you to tune in, learn a few things and uh, maybe provide some support to animal justice. Awesome. Can't miss. Do not miss. Do not miss. Do not miss. Great pandemic watching. So yeah. before we get into all the main stuff, just have a couple more reminders. And one of those is to leave us a review, please. Uh, we'd love if you could add to our 100 plus five star reviews. Uh, I don't actually have any new reviews to read today because nobody's left us any in the last two weeks. And it's making me kind of sad. So oh. cheer me up. <laughs> hey, people. Don't let Camille be sad. Come on. <laughs> you guys got to stop by Apple Podcasts and leave us a note or leave us a five star at least if you can't leave a note, assuming you think the podcast deserves five stars. We would love your support. Um, and speaking of support, you can also help us out on Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. 
Patreon's a crowdsourcing platform that lets you support creators like the Paw and Order podcast uh, with a, mon- a monthly donation amount. And we have a new Patreon or new patron this week. I'd like to say a huge thank you to our new supporter, Denis LaRoche. Yay! Yay, Denis! Okay, and with that out of the way, Katie, I think we're into the news. News time. News time. All right, first up, this is a hot topic this past week. Canada Goose made an announcement, funny enough, on Earth Day, greenwashing alert, uh, where they're committing (laughs) to all this sustainability stuff. And the most interesting claim from my perspective is that they are planning as of 2022 to start using only quote-unquote, reclaimed fur on their cruel jackets. So really interesting. Um, what yeah. they're saying is they're going to stop like using new fur from coyotes who are trapped, and they're going to buy fur back from customers who previously purchased their jackets and use that fur mm-hmm. instead. So wow. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, I, I'm sort of, I'm sitting here thinking, should I say yay? But it's not, it's sort of a yay, yay, but it's a big thing. It's a big thing. And I think, um, I mean, I know you're, you're going to talk about this. They don't sort of admit that there was anything wrong with what they were doing before, but it's an implicit admission um, that it it was not right to be using traps for, from coyotes. And that really was just an abomination. So I am glad that they're discontinuing that. Yeah. The jackets I think... are still, still ugly though. Oh my God. They're so ugly. Please don't wear them. Please. <laughs> just, just for the sake they're of my so eyes. Don't wear them. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree with you. I think it's a moderate victory. Um, it's a, it's a good move. Like it's progress. The fact that they were forced into doing this and make no mistake, they were forced into doing this by years of advocacy Mm -hmm. for groups like us, by groups like PETA, by uh, fur bearers, uh, many other organizations who worked on this, people on the street who handed out pamphlets and literature and shared stuff on social media. Uh, they felt the heat. Um, it's unfortunate because most other fashion houses are actually dropping fur entirely from their lines, uh, just one after the other. So, you know, I worry that this is just humane washing. Um, they don't even mention, as you, as you noted, the fact that animals matter in this announcement. They say it's just yeah. about being more sustainable. Uh, but I worry that, Katie, it might actually be a roundabout way of getting around these new fur bans in places like, well, the entire state of California, the city of Los Angeles, San could Francisco. Be. Could be. Could be. Potentially New yeah. York wants to ban new sales of fur. There's loopholes in those bands for used fur, you know, for vintage fur and things like that. So I wonder if they're going to try to keep their store open in New York through this ban. Maybe. Yeah. But but maybe it's the thin end of the wedge and they've given in on this point. And uh, you have proven that persistence and patience pay off. So don't quit. Keep fighting. And uh, they may if you keep on them they probably can't get away with just trying to get around those those loopholes and business as usual yeah so i i don't think they really deserve any credit whatsoever for this this the credit goes to all the people who worked for a moment like this to come um but yeah don't stop working they're still using down in their jackets they Mm -hmm. haven't dropped down which of course is incredibly cruel because ducks and geese are killed for down Um, And the fact that fur is used at all, I mean, whether it's new or whether it's so-called recycled, um, an animal still had to die in a leg hole trap or a snare. And that's a horrifically cruel process. And it also continues to make it look like it's sort of glamorous and 
like a good material uh, and and I think it's not just the animals that died to produce the sort of reclaimed fur that are a problem I think it it um, perpetuates the acceptability of fur and other animals can die because of that yeah yeah that's exactly right it's not fashionable and they shouldn't be promoting it as such so um, but overall a moderate victory and some progress in the right direction And uh, funny enough, our next story also has to do with Canada Goose. Funny, because it's springtime, and that's usually the time where I breathe a sigh of relief because I can stop seeing the jackets every day, but here we are. (laughs) (laughs) So this is a a story of a legal case that animal justice was involved in, um, but primarily... <clears throat> PETA, PETA for the ethical people for the ethical treatment of animals. They sued Astral Media and the City of Toronto over the removal of anti-Canada goose ads from Toronto transit shelters. So bus shelters, streetcar shelters that you see on the street. PETA mm-hmm. had put up a couple of ads. Uh, one had a coyote and, and said something like, "I'm um, it, I'm me, not for trim." And uh, one had a goose that said something similar. And they referenced Canada Goose. One of them was put up near the facility's um, headquarters in Toronto. One was put up near the home of the CEO, Danny Reese. And what ended mm-hmm. up happening, we didn't find this out later until Canada Goose had to admit it in court. Uh, but at the time, they told PETA that they got complaints. And so they had to take the ads down. And it was in the contract that they could do that. Turns out, yeah. they later admitted they got one complaint. And that was from Canada <laughs> Goose. <laughs> oh, Wow. And Katie, guess what? Guess what? Could you imagine that maybe Canada Goose also spends a lot of money with them and they were concerned about losing that income? Uh, That would would stun me. Could that possibly happen? Could it possibly be? Surely, surely not. They bowed to financial threats from Canada Goose? (laughs) Wow. Yeah. At any rate. Maybe PETA should spend more money with them. Yeah, yeah, maybe if that's if that's what it takes for Astral to keep your ads up, it's, it's just giving them more money. Money then. talks. Money talks. <laughs> so Astral took the ads down. The The reason Toronto is involved uh, and the reason we got involved is because that's city property. Um, Astral leases yep. those shelters or puts, put up those shelters, but they're on city property that belongs to all of us. And there's a principle yep. in this country that governments can't discriminate against people uh, in terms of what they're saying. You can't stifle somebody's yeah. ability to get their message out. That's freedom of expression, Section 2B of the Charter. So um, PETA, case, PETA brought the case. Uh, we intervened to make the point about the Charter. And unfortunately, the divisional court uh, dismissed the case. They didn't dismiss it on the charter basis that we'd argue. They said that mm-hmm. the court didn't have jurisdiction to hear the case because it was, um, you know, a private decision, basically, and not a public decision. So yeah. that's kind of it for now. Um, I'm not sure what those next steps are going to be, but we'll keep people posted. It's um, that that's a real conundrum. It When I read the case, and there's not a whole lot in it It, it's uh it's fairly brief um but it reminds me of there's this concept i teach first year property law so there's this concept in property scholarship of um private ownership of public spaces or pops um and i i think this is sort of maps onto that really nicely um there's a lot of space in cities that once upon a time would have been like the public square 
um, and is now privately owned. So think about um, like one time when this came up a lot was in the Occupy Wall Street protests oh. and people were, were uh, setting up protests and camps in these like squares and cities like Zuccotti Park in New York. And Zuccotti Park is actually privately owned. Oh, wow. It's, um, yeah, it's a piece of land that belongs to the same developer that built one of the big buildings down there. And there's often kind of deals between cities and land developers where they'll say, you know, you get some sort of like zoning concession, like you can build it taller if you agree to keep this space open uh, to the public, right? So Zuccotti Park is privately owned land, but it's open to the public and there are like food vendors and people can walk in and out at will. Um, So there's a whole sort of body of law about the right to protest publicly in public spaces that are owned by public authorities. Um, and a lot of question marks about what, how that applies when the space is owned privately, because we need that space for that function, right? I mean, it's sort of one of the oldest ways that we've exercised freedom of speech by you know, going down to the town square and yelling about what you want to say. Um, and it, it seems to me these advertising spaces are very similar, like raise really similar issues. And it, I just don't think it's as simple as saying this is a private actor's decision. I think that you're you're right that taking that publicly owned space out of the places where people can get their message out raises some pretty serious issues and constitutional issues. Oh, that's a really... Really interesting perspective. Uh, One of the points that we made during the litigation is that if cities could simply lease out their property to to other advertisers, to private advertisers, they can essentially contract out of protecting people's charter rights by doing that. Yep. And that. Yep. And they can just say, it's not our problem. We didn't do it. We didn't decide. Yeah. Yeah. We got a contract with these other guys. They make the decision. Mm -hmm. It's not us. And yeah, for all those reasons you point out, that's hugely problematic. So no, interesting case. It may not be over yet. We'll we'll see where it goes. Okay, and to end on some additional good news, Katie, the Calgary Stampede has been canceled for 2020. Okay, this one is definitely a full-on yay. Woo-hoo! Yay! <laughs> now, let me just be clear. I was born in Calgary. My dad still lives there. I love the city of Calgary. The Stampede at its best is a community celebration. But the worst parts of it are the rodeo. That's what I can abide by. And that's what I don't Mm -hmm. think most compassionate people like. Uh, Polls show that most people oppose rodeo events. And it's a great, great, great news story for all the horses who won't die this year. Because every single year, almost every single year, horses die in chuck wagon races. And cows and calves are abused and have their necks snapped back with lassoes and ropes. So that's a win for them. And it's a win for compassion. Yes. And they experience, I mean, you can just see how much terror they go through as well, even if they don't get killed. It's, there's a lot of suffering. Oh, yeah. You just, the photos of it. And Joanne MacArthur has taken a lot of really amazing photos at the Sampede. You can see the Uh terror in their eyes. It's horrifying. Horrifying. It's not cool. It's not cool. Rodeo's not cool, people. Not cool. And and so that's, you know, grabbing a lot of attention because the Calgary Stampede is the most notorious rodeo. Uh, But it's not the only one. This is happening across the country. Uh, Rib rib fests are also being uh, canceled, which... Yeah, we have one in Kamloops, but not this year. (laughs) Not anymore. (laughs) Not this year. 
Now it's you know it's tough to claim this as a full on victory for the animals because it's not like they're being canceled because people have suddenly opened their eyes to how awful this was and demanded change. But it does mean fewer right. animals will suffer for that purpose. So that's something we can all celebrate. Yes, we have to take the small victories, right, Camille? Because they're usually just small. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's okay. We're we're chipping away and we're making progress. You got to stay optimistic. Yeah. 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 This it, it's the yeah it's another sort of silver lining in the pandemic situation, which overall is a, a very very tragic situation. And uh, you know, I, I I guess I'm kind of segueing to our next thing, but it is causing a lot of suffering and tragedy for animals too. Um, but there are these little bits of silver lining, and we we have to celebrate them. Celebrate them, and then remind people that you know we went through a year without a rodeo, and everybody survived. Yeah, uh, it was yeah. fine. We could probably do another year. We could probably do the rest of our lives without rodeos and everyone would be fine. Yeah. So that's the message we just have to keep pushing. Yeah. Calgary culture would not like cease to exist. Um, the west of Canada wouldn't collapse. We'd, we'd, make, we'd make it. We'd make it through. Yeah. No, people can still go to their pancake breakfasts and get drunk at yeah. 7 a.m. and wear their cowboy boots and cowboy hats. <laughs> we'll all still have a good time without the animal abuse. Exactly. Quesava hmm. creates delicious dishes that are inspired by classic world village foods that your grandma might make. History with a modern twist. Quesava's dishes are rich with bold flavors, authentic ingredients, and they happen to be naturally gluten-free. Quesava has something for everyone, including its own line of 100% plant-based foods that include cheddar-style potato pierogies, my favorite, sweet potato ravioli, and green pea and potato samosas. Cassava's dough is made from the cassava root, which has sustained indigenous people in Brazil and Peru for thousands of years. Cassava was inspired by a time when allergies and food sensitivities weren't abundant like they are now. Cassava's products are always natural with ingredients you can pronounce that are good for you and for the planet. Perfect for vegans, vegetarians, the health conscious, the planet lovers, and the celebrators of life. Cassava's products are made in Vancouver, BC. Visit the store finder at quesava.com, that's Q-U-E-S-A-V-A, to find a retailer near you. And today we've got a special giveaway for our patrons through the Patreon program with Pot and Order. I'm doing a random number generation right now. We've got two lucky winners. Congratulations, Roxanne Dubay and Kristen Marsh. Your gift certificates for Quesava products are in the mail. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know the benefits of eating a meat-free diet. But there are likely people in your life who find the idea of cutting out meat and animal products intimidating or scary. The Vancouver Vegetarian Society was founded on the belief that a vegetarian and vegan lifestyle is the future. It serves as a welcoming resource for anyone curious about meat-free lifestyles while offering inspiration and education on the beauty and benefits of a plant-based diet. They post a ton of resources and information daily on their social sites and regularly take part in events to bring people together in the plant-based community. If you're curious to learn more, find them on Facebook and Instagram at, at Vancouver Veg Society or on the web at VancouverVegetarianSociety.com. All right, well, I think it's time to move on to our main topic, which is a it's a big one and it keeps expanding because the more we started digging into it, the more there was. But what we're going to talk about yeah. generally is the impact of COVID on the meat supply chain. So slaughterhouse closures, 
And this is an opportunity to talk uh, not just about the horrific cruelty to animals and the suffering that they endure at slaughterhouses and at the hands of the meat industry, uh, but we also want to talk a lot about what the workers are enduring. Uh, this is another issue yes. that does not get far any like a fraction of the attention that it deserves. But it's not just animals who are abused by the meat industry; it's also workers. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah. this and gives it, us it is a heart. It's a heartless industry, and they treat the workers as as much like just sort of commodities and money making units, almost as the animals. And we're we're really seeing that exposed at the moment. Yeah. And I think, again, you know, shedding light on the situation is step one. People are seeing this and that's good. So before we really get into it, I just want to say a word about terminology. Um, If you've been reading about this issue, if you're listening to this and and you've you've already seen a little bit of, of the news stories about slaughterhouses closing, you probably haven't seen them called slaughterhouses. You've probably seen them That's described. Right. Yep. <laughs> yeah, they're either processing plants, meatpacking plants. plants. Yeah. Yeah, they're that always called plants. Like not so bad, right? They're probably, and like, isn't it ironic that the word is plant? I know, right? <laughs> There's no plants involved. <laughs> Just hunks of dead flesh from tortured animals. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So just, you know, don't buy into that terminology is all I want to say. If you're having a conversation about this, don't accept what the media terminology and what the industry is trying to call these places. We need to expose them for what they are. And language is important. Yeah, It's always important to call them slaughterhouses because that's what they are. These are not just benign yeah. factories that pump something out. They're places where live animals go in, they lose their lives through a horrific process and they come out dead. And I think it just um, shows that both the industry itself and, you know, the public are uncomfortable facing that that's what it actually is. People don't want to name it because we would really like to dissociate ourselves from the fact that animals do actually have to be killed and chopped up to become meat. So it's just like much more comforting to imagine that there there are things being processed in a facility of some kind right yeah exactly and that's why we call that's why we use words like beef like pork um you know instead of calling it what it is which is pigs and cows so same same situation but um we've been learning i mean some of us already knew but i think it's now becoming apparent why slaughterhouses are some of the most dangerous places in the country uh to work Mm -hmm. in at the best of times and how that's been really exacerbated by the COVID virus. Um, so just let's just talk about some of the reasons why they're so dangerous in, in general and why the COVID virus is, is uh, problematic in particular. So, you know, first of all, workers, Katie, as you know, are jammed in there. Um, they're kept in close yeah. quarters. Uh, slaughterhouses yeah. are assembly lines, highly mechanized um, systems where everybody has a job. And that job is to do the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, one person's job is to take crates off a truck. One person's job mm-hmm. is to remove the chickens from those crates and shackle their legs onto a, onto a line. Um, say if we're talking about a pig slaughterhouse or a cow slaughterhouse, one person's job is to stick the knife in the neck. Uh, one person does one cut along a particular part of an animal to start the evisceration process and it moves down the line and another person does the next cut. Uh, and these people are all standing right next to each other. So physical distancing, yeah. very, very difficult. So so that's number one. Um, but then the the conditions, the absolutely filthy conditions are part number two. 
Um, slaughterhouse yeah. workers have described that blood, guts, and fluids are all over the place. Uh, when you're, you know, there's no easy, clean, neat way to disassemble an animal, to kill an animal who didn't want to li live and then disassemble their body. You just can't do that without making That's a right. huge, yeah. disgusting mess. It's violent and it's biological and it's not a nice, clean, clinical process. No, and these fluids provide a really easy transmission route for the virus. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, and, and you know we're we're not even really going to get into the the serious workplace injuries that slaughterhouse workers experience at the best of the time. Some of those are repetitive strain, um, cutting themselves with knives. There's lots of aerosolized um, substances that come from dead animals that enter their lungs that result in higher rates of various diseases and infections. Uh, yeah, poop. That, poop is what you're talking about, right? Yeah, basically poop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is not something anyone should be breathing in. But unfortunately, no. these people are these people are forced to. And um, in the U.S., so one of the other troubling things that's making these these slaughterhouses just ticking time bombs, frankly, in, in the U.S., and I yeah. haven't, I don't want to say for sure that this is happening in Canada because I just haven't seen that evidence, but some slaughterhouses early on were even paying workers bonuses not to miss their shifts. So this yeah. is basically yeah. a financial incentive to show up while they're sick. And that's exactly yeah. what happened. Yeah, yeah. And, and the industry depends so much on everything moving really fast, which is uh, connected to how much animals suffer in this process because uh, the, the lines run fast and things it's impossible for things to always be done <clears throat> the right way. Um, and so animals will go through the lines still conscious because it, it runs at a pace that is, you know, it makes it impossible to do it right all the time. And that has all these other consequences. Like, they, you know, you, you can't have people not there and keep it running um, on the model that, that they're committed to. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They operate on the, the whole meat industry operates on this just in time model where they've got it timed down to the minute, basically down to the yeah. day for sure. Animals become slaughter weight at a certain point in their lives. And then the farmers send them off to slaughter because a new shipment is coming in. They can't just sit around and wait for those animals to, you know, keep growing. They send them right. to the slaughterhouse and the slaughterhouse has to deal with them. And if they get backed up, then everybody loses money. So they want these people there for their shifts. They want them there on time. Um, and they don't seem to care if that comes at the expense of their health. And the industry employs very vulnerable people, generally speaking. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's a, that's a very important point. So um, most people don't want to work in slaughterhouses. The people who do. Yeah are often people from marginalized communities. They're often immigrant workers who've just arrived in Canada, don't have many other options. Um, they're vulnerable because they often don't speak English as a first language. Sometimes their English skills are limited and they have a difficult time um, understanding what information they, they need to know to keep themselves safe. And they feel disempowered. They don't have a lot of other options, so they continue working right. there despite the risks. It's it's heartbreaking. They exploit the most vulnerable people and the most most vulnerable animals. It is uh, pretty appalling. Yeah, yeah. So you know, some of the Canadian slaughterhouses affected have been some really big ones. And let's just focus for a minute on Alberta because that's I think where we've seen the most uh, hor horrifying cases. Yeah. Um, 
And I want to give yeah. a shout out to uh, the folks over at Factory Farm Collective who've done a really good job keeping track um, on their website and especially their social media accounts and up to date uh, tally of how many slaughterhouses and how many workers have been affected, including outbreaks and also deaths. But the two mm-hmm. that are the worst right now, Katie, there's the JBS slaughterhouse in Brooks, Alberta. It has yeah. 205 cases of COVID confirmed as of April 27th and one death. And mm. the Cargill Slaughterhouse in High River, which is far worse, they're now up to 710 cases as of April 27th and a death there as well. Uh, and interestingly, I didn't know this, but I, I knew it was a lot, but I didn't know that those two slaughterhouses accounted for 70% of, uh, and I, I don't like you to use this word, but just to you know, be consistent with industry terminology for a minute, 70% of beef production in Canada. Wow. 70%. 70%. Wow. So, you know, the effect that that's going to have down the road is is still unforeseen. Um, these two slaughterhouses have both now closed. Uh, they were kind of forced to close. But, but interestingly, I think regulators may be complicit in this situation too. So, oh, they, do you? Oh, do you think so? <laughs> what, what would make you think that? Well, do you want to talk about the video inspection? <laughs> I think we should talk about the video inspection. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't know that this was even possible. Like it boggles my mind why anyone would think that this is appropriate. But the is this o- thing that has ever happened before? I. You know, they they say that they've done this in other situations. I'm not sure if they've done it pre-COVID or this is a new thing. But the health and safety inspection people, they did a video inspection. And I should, you know. uh, Was it FaceTime? By FaceTime. (laughs) FaceTime or like WhatsApp or Skype, like some some video phone thing. That sounds really effective. That's some good, good regulating. Good regulating, Alberta. Well, we know that's what Alberta's good at, is overseeing industries that, that harm the planet and people and animals, right? I mean, I shouldn't laugh because it's tragic, but it's so absurd. Mm. It's so absurd. So they did a video inspection of the facility instead of attending in person. And um, and guess what? Why, now- why would they not want to attend in person? Were they busy that day? I you know, you know, they're busy. They don't want to expose themselves to poor conditions that the workers have to endure. They, maybe they think it's dangerous. Is that why? <laughs> maybe it's like it, it is just mind boggling. It really is. Yeah, yeah, it truly is. So, you know, I'll be curious to see what action um, is coming out of this. The union and uh, somewhat unusually for um, slaughterhouse workers, uh, these folks at the Cargill plant did happen to be unionized. So the union has been calling for uh, the closure of the slaughterhouse for for weeks, um, long yeah. before it became as much of a problem as it was. And if it had closed back then, then maybe we wouldn't be in this situation. Um, right. And Katie, what's so interesting to me too is uh, the United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Uh, they're actually, and actually, I think it was another labor organization too. But there are calls now for a criminal investigation into the slaughterhouse by police. Um, one person did die. A bunch of others are mm-hmm. seriously sick. And um, mm-hmm. this isn't an issue I've really thought about much. But the criminal code does contain provisions, the so-called Westray provisions. Um, yeah. I'm, sh- I'm sure you remember the Westray mine disaster in Nova Scotia that left yeah. a bunch of miners tragically dead. Um those provisions were introduced in the aftermath of Westray to better hold corporate offenders to account for failing to provide a safe workplace. 
So it will be very interesting to see if that investigation occurs. Yes, it would. I I, I hope that happens. Um, I feel a very inadequate substitute for Peter right now because I'm not a criminal law expert. So <laughs> I had to go like, I had to go look up what the West <laughs> provisions say. Um, but I mean, it, it seems to me as a non-criminal law expert that, I, I mean, there's at least a possibility that that could apply. So yes, I, I hope that, I hope we learn more. Yeah, definitely worth an investigation at the very least. Yeah. So I really hope authorities um, look into this because, you know, frankly, a person lost, I believe it was a him, of his life. Uh, yep. This isn't a joke. Oh, no. So. And, and you think about how many, uh, all of those cases um, of people who are working in slaughterhouses. But then, I mean, the, the biggest problem that we're dealing with with COVID-19 is that if you have a, a case and it's such an infectious pathogen, then you don't know how many other people are affected by that down the line, right? Like you don't know who touched a surface that that person touched and then they went on and hugged someone. And we probably can't ever know that. So the, this is this is what we're all working so hard to try to control. And we've, we've all given up so much of our lives to try to contain it. And people like this who are just keeping going to make money um, and posing this gigantic risk to public health could undo all of the work that we're doing. Yeah, it's really horrible. And and I believe the, the number, so 915 cases, that's about a quarter of all the COVID cases in Alberta came from just these two slaughterhouses wow. that stayed open despite the risks. So, I mean, wow. that's a... a pretty serious disregard for the community, I would say. Yeah. And bur burgers are not worth it. And no. more money in the pockets of the people who own these companies is definitely not worth it. Definitely not. Uh, and But those aren't the only slaughterhouses that are closing. Just a, a couple that I've come across. This is not a comprehensive list. Um, check out Factory Farm Collective's list if you want a little bit more info. But Harmony Foods near Calgary uh, which I believe kills chickens. There's also United Poultry in Vancouver, which um, eventually shut down. It resisted calls at first, I think. And there's Lilydale in Calgary, which is owned by Safina. Safina actually operates 16 what they call plants, and we're going to call slaughterhouses, which is what they actually are across the country. That's what they are. That's what yeah. they are. That's what they are. Um, and they kill quite a lot of chickens. Uh, so, you know, this, this, Pandemic is hitting vulnerable people especially hard. That includes slaughterhouse workers. And the reasons for that are obvious. The conditions that they work in, um, the vulnerable populations. And, you know, all for what? Basically for people's taste buds. So we can keep feeding people meat. Um, I've been surviving pretty well on a bunch of beans and lentils and all kinds of delicious carbs and fruits and vegetables, Katie. I don't know about you, but I think the, the country could do with a little less meat for a while. Oh, well, I personally am wasting away from malnutrition because I'm not eating a hunk of murdered cow every day. <laughs> not really. <laughs> Uh-oh, should I be worried about you? <laughs> no, I, I seem to do all right. <laughs> oh, good. Well, okay, and this, you know, this is not a problem unique to Canada either. In fact, um, I think there's probably been even more discussion about this in the United States. There has been a few plants there. Uh, sorry, I just used the word myself. A few slaughterhouses there. They, they get in your head, don't they? <laughs> they do. It's really insidious. Um, yeah. 
that have situations that are perhaps even worse than what we're experiencing. I, I don't have the recent figures in front of me, but there's a Smithfield pig slaughterhouse in South Dakota that it was one of those places that was incentivizing employees to show up early on by offering bonuses to make them work. And uh, an outbreak became just just horrific. Um, you know, there was all kinds of stories coming out of it of like them providing free lunch. And so everyone's circulating through this lunch area and touching stuff. And uh, there's no sanitation. It's just like a festering time bomb oh waiting to go off. That is outrageous. That is just so appalling. Outrageous. Um, but you know, the one of the more, more outrageous thing about the Smithfield pig slaughterhouse and BuzzFeed did a pretty good investigation into this uh, is that they actually, when pressed, they made some highly racist remarks, blaming the practices yes. of their workers for transmission instead of acknowledging their role. So they said that, um, actually, let me just see if I can even pull this. Oh, I don't think I have the link in front of me, but they basically, basically they implied. something about like, like they're not clean enough or something, right? Like, it yeah. was, I mean, it was really gross just gross just horrible like workers from immigrant communities don't don't keep clean they've got poor hygiene yeah. practices they live all crammed into houses together and i just you know i think that's just further proof that the meat industry doesn't care about you doesn't care about me doesn't care about the animals doesn't care about the workers and they're trying to deflect blame because they know they're in trouble yeah yeah rather than accept any responsibility uh, and then, Katie, you sent me an interesting article just before we started recording, which is is interesting, but also troubling about um, uh-huh. companies asking for increased slaughter speeds. Yeah. Doesn't that seem like a really weird add on to this whole story? <laughs> what are, like all these terrible things are happening and what's the industry solution? Kill more chickens faster. Kill more chickens faster. Yeah. So the USDA has apparently been granting a record number of requests. Um, so I guess 15 chicken slaughterhouses are now allowed to kill 175 birds per minute instead of 140. So that's like about two birds per second previously, now up to three birds per second. That's a massive, massive increase. And all those impacts that you were describing on workers and the, the filthy conditions, I mean, that uh, that's what is that, like a 50% increase? All the danger is 50% increased as well. That is not a scientific estimate. <laughs> but, <laughs> Berlina, <laughs> Berlina Disclaimer. something like that, right? <laughs> yeah. How about we just say it's really, really bad? It's bad. It's worse. It was. It is The baseline is bad, and this increase in speed makes it worse. Yeah, and the USDA is already being sued by a bunch of groups in the States for increasing line speeds even before the coronavirus hit. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they haven't given their heads a shake and thought about whether this could contribute to animal suffering, uh, worker conditions being even worse than they are, it's just, it's appalling. Yeah, I think when I sent you the story, my comment in the email was, ah! (laughs) (laughs) That accurately sums up, I think, how most of us feel about it. I think so. So then... We want to pivot just a little bit, and this wasn't really originally part of the plan, but all these stories are coming out today. And in particular, there's a piece by Reuters about what's happening to animals on farms. So we've got a yeah. couple of factors in play here. The, the production system has been thrown into a bit of a tailspin because A, there's less slaughter capacity because all these plants are just filled with coronavirus. Um, but B, there's weird 
production issues. So the meat supply chain, the meat dairy industry supply chain is actually quite complex. Um, some of yeah. them produce exclusively for grocery stores. Some of them produce more for industrial settings like cafeterias or restaurants. Uh-huh. So you can imagine it's not just quite as simple of, you know, like assuming everybody is, our human population has remained stable. So you would think that meat consumption, dairy consumption, egg consumption is is stable as well. It's actually not as easy as um, some would think just to pivot and start producing instead of for restaurants, for grocery stores instead. So just to use the example of eggs, um, if you're supplying eggs to restaurants or cafeterias, often that's liquid eggs. And it's eggs that you're not selling in cartons. So you can't just easily, um, you know, get cartons when there's a carton shortage, which apparently there currently is, and start putting those into restaurants. So Katie... And you need different people to come pick it up, and the whole route, the whole chain is different. Yeah, yeah, it's a very complex and integrated industry. And one that's not very resilient, is what we're learning, and not very adaptable to modern times. So, Katie, what do you think farmers are doing in response to the situation where they've got excess, um, you know, product or excess animals in their view? What do you think they're doing about that? Do you think they're feeding the animals and taking care of them and just waiting for a while? Well, we know because they tell us all the time that the welfare of their animals is very important to them, right? And they would never uh, cause them to suffer. And they, they um, their bottom line is better when they take good care of their animals. Right, Camille? Oh, and they also treat them like members of their own family is, is what I've right. been told. <laughs> That's, that is correct. You have, it's not correct that they do that, but it's correct that you've been told that. <laughs> it is correct that I've been told that. <laughs> so as you can probably guess, what they're doing is, um, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the industry term for a minute, they're doing depopulation, which is one of those. Depopulation. Depopulation. Yeah, isn't that a great word? Great word, um, great. Do you think? Camille, this just occurred to me. Do you think they have actually just admitted that animals are people? That's a great question. <laughs> de-peopling, de-peopling animal yeah. populations. I mean, population is made of people, right? Yeah. Hey, maybe they've inadvertently shot themselves in the foot here. <laughs> oh, but what we're seeing now is is farmers killing off animals who they can't afford to feed or to sell. Um, you know, it's it's. It's one of those situations where the animals are going to be killed anyway. Uh, yeah. They're going to be slaughtered. So, it, you know, it's not like they're contributing to a net increase in the number of animals who are killing. Um, but I think people who hear about this still feel very upset about it because what it does is it exposes the fact that these animals are just seen as commodities to the farmers. They're yeah, not seen as individuals. That's right. Yeah. There's something to live or to die according to economic considerations exclusively. Um, the Reuters article, Katie, had an interesting note as well about what's happening in Canada. And, and I've seen less about this reported in the Canadian media. But it says um, that the value of... So farmers in Canada are also killing animals they can't uh, sell or afford to feed. The value of Canadian baby pigs has fallen to zero mm-hmm. because of U.S. processing plant disruptions. That's a quote from the article. I'm not using that term. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that was said by Rick Bergman, a Manitoba far- hog farmer and chair of the Canadian Port Council. And as it's reported that in Quebec alone, a backlog of 92,000 pigs waits for slaughter. And Quebec hog producer Rene Roy, an executive, uh, says executive 
says this guy with the port council. Um, but here's the, the really disturbing part. Uh, a hog farm on Prince Edward Island in Canada euthanized. Again, their word, not mine. Euthanized. Uh, yep. Disposed of. Disposed of 270 pound hogs that were ready for slaughter because there was no place to process them. The animals were dumped in a landfill. Mmm, that is nice. Yeah, that's like, I, I kind of started thinking about this when all the um, slaughterhouse closures were starting, that that must have backup effects further up the, the supply chain. And it's not really so much an animal suffering problem because those animals were all going to suffer and die anyway. In fact, if anything, it might might slow it down a little bit but like it's got to be an environmental disaster right There's, yeah there must be there must be just landfills full of corpses of chickens and pigs that went that we haven't heard about because they must be somewhere oh they're definitely somewhere they're they're all over the place and and actually i want to use this opportunity if you're a listener and you're aware of one in your area um, you know, let us know. I'm, I'm curious to know yeah. where these events are taking place, whether they're complying with environmental regulations, um, how they're killing the animals, whether they're doing that in acceptable ways. Is uh, anyone overseeing it? Are there any inspections? Are environmental authorities checking into this at all? Yeah. Interesting to know. Yeah. These are all questions we don't really know the answer to right now. But I think what we do know just to wrap up the segment, um, I think that this reveals a lot about who the meat re industry really is. Um, this is proof that the sector, it's not a resilient one, and it's proof that business That's can't right. just yeah. continue as usual. This, this pandemic situation is not going away anytime soon. Uh, if we have a future pandemic, uh, an, an industry as integrated and as just on time as this one is, is not going to fare any better. So it's, a good chance to start changing things. Um, you know, it would be no big deal, Katie, if we had some extra grain or some corn ticking around, right? You put that in a yep. warehouse. Um, yep. Or if lentils, we have some extra, yeah, lentils. Thank you for a long time. They'll last for years. Or if we have some extra greens, well, you know, I guess what? Guess what? They wilt, nobody suffers, and they get turned into compost. Uh, that's, that's not right. the case with animals. Mm -hmm. They're sentient beings, and I hope people increasingly start to think about them when they hear these news stories. The media and the producers do a lot to minimize the role of the animals in these stories. There's really very little mention of who they are as individuals. It's more just about numbers yeah. and convenience and economics, yeah. but let's all remember that they matter. And weirdly, kind of a, a little bit of allusion to sort of like how sad it is for the farmers that they've got all these pigs that they've raised and they have to kill them and I just, I always find that so bizarre because like they're gonna kill them like that's what they raised them for so yeah it's yeah. a very strange way of dealing with the this the the living sentient beingness of the animals in this it, that always comes up in um you know like mad cow disease and foot and mouth disease and stuff too when the farmers are all like heartbroken because they have to kill all of the animals that are affected by the disease and it's just so weird because they were going to kill them anyway <laughs> so yeah yeah, yeah we no, have it's... a very strange perspective on this it's like we can't hold these ideas in our mind at the same time when we the the results are just very peculiar yeah, no, it says a lot about the, the very conflicted ways that we think about animals. All right. Well, Katie, that was an enlightening main segment, I hope, for our listeners. I found that a very interesting conversation. 
Hi, this is Marianne Sullivan. I'm the host of the Animal Law Podcast, where I interview lawyers, mostly but not always from the United States, who are using the law to change the world for animals. From wild animals to companion animals to the billions of brutally treated farmed animals, my guests are in this to find ways to remake the law to recognize that animals matter. The Animal Law Podcast is produced by media not-for-profit Our Hen House, and I guess I will mention I'm also the co-host of the Our Hen House Podcast. I hope you tune in wherever you listen to podcasts. Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. All right, so we're going to do our zero first so that we can end on a positive note. And this segues really well with what you were just talking about, Katie, which is uh, how farmers feel about killing all these animals. And we're going to yeah. we're going to go to a story from the states about a chicken farmer who was quoted describing his choice to kill 61,000 chickens for market-based convenient reasons. He said, quote, the longer I was there, the more disgusted and disappointed I was, knowing that I'm not going to see anything put back in my checkbook, end quote. So I think that's just really telling. He's, he's talking uh -huh. exclusively about the economic issues and how disappointed he is for that reason. He's not talking about what the chickens meant to him. He's not even trying to claim that they're members of his family. He's just talking about his bottom line. And that really says a lot. But Camille, we know that um, farmers think of the animals as members of their family. So I guess that's how he feels about the members of his family. I guess we should just assume. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. But on a more positive note, this week's hero was an easy one. Uh, we want to give the hero award to our dear friend, Peter Sankoff. For a lot of things, for making it through a stroke, that's deserving of a hero award on its own, but also just because Peter's really been hustling lately. He's been doing everything he yes, can. Yes. He's been trying to place 100 interns in summer positions out of the goodness of his heart, fundraising for this initiative just so those students can have something to put on their resume and have a little money in their bank accounts as we get through this pandemic. And um, he's shockingly, he's a machine. He's still committed to that project despite his recent health setback. Yeah. So if that yeah, doesn't count, it, it just um, it means so much for law students and recent law graduates. This is a really tough time for them. It's a tough time for a lot of people. Um, but it, the, the legal industry has had to do a lot of cutting back layoffs. All the courts are closed. A lot of work that, that certain lawyers do has just stopped completely. So it really is, you know, we got thrown into this crisis situation basically overnight. And I think Peter's program has provided a lifeline for some students who need experience. Also for like, like your organization, a lot of organizations that are able to um, get the benefit of work from these students that they otherwise wouldn't. So um, he's, he's a hero for putting that together. He's a hero. He's a hero for that and for a lot of reasons. And Peter, we love you. We hope you get well soon. Um, listeners, Peter will be back in a future episode before too long. So you'll, you'll get a dose of his snark again. Don't worry about that. Uh, but until then, we wish him all the best. And uh, Katie, Definitely. I want to thank you for joining and filling in as a guest host. Peter, Peter better watch out. He might have some competition. Well, I, I don't think I'm even close <laughs> competing with him, but it's been such a pleasure. I've really, really enjoyed it. And it's just so fun to chat with a, with a great friend about important animal law issues. And uh, I, I would love to do it again. Well, I'm sure you'll be back. All right, everyone, we're signing off for now. Talk to you in a couple weeks. Goodbye, everyone.
We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. And if you can, please tell other listeners to share the podcast so more people can hear us. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash pot and order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Paw and Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!